0: Welcome to the Big Water Podcast. I am Ross Robertson, and we are doing what we always do, but we're just talking about it now. Fishing is what we do, but we've got an interesting guest today. We've got a guy that I kind of consider like the Dos Equis of outdoor world, outdoor radio, media, whatever you want to call it. He's been there, done that in the last 40 plus years. Man by the name of Steve Pollock, who definitely has helped me on the early days and put me in countless articles. Many guys know him as the uh, outdoor editor for many, many years with the Toledo Blade. I know him also as a friend, and I'm fortunate to feel that. Uh, Steve, thanks for taking your time to to join us today.
1: Good morning, Ross. Glad to be here.
0: You have been doing this a really long time, haven't you?
1: Yes, uh, almost since uh, dirt was created, I think.
0: (laughs) I I did a little searching because, you know, I tried to do a little bit of prep on these things, and you joined the Toledo Blade in 1971. Is that am that, I am I close? And in uh, in
1: no, that's 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 it. And that was uh, just three years into the first time I ever wrote an outdoors column.
0: That's uh, yeah, a fellow Ohio State guy, correct? I'll tell you what it's it's amazing that when you think about how many people have come and gone because I can kind of remember um, you know my grandpa and my dad listening to or watching and listening doing the whole deal with Luke Luer, who I believe you took over for him, right?
1: Right, right. I, I followed Lou. Uh, in fact, yeah, uh, you know, he started in in like 1923, and had like a 59 year career at the Blade, if you can believe that. And then I piled uh, 40 years on top of that, uh, 31 of it as outdoors editor. Uh, that's uh, that we covered a long span between the two of us, uh, a century.
0: And I'll tell you, it's kind of crazy, too, because when, when you retired, uh, another Blade guy who wasn't really in that role or, or came from, you know, came from within, which was unique because of what happened before, um, uh, Matt Markey, you know, a lot of people were like, man, he's got some serious you know, shoes to fill because, you know, you had been there for so long and so uh, award winning and, and been there just kind of iconic, if you will. And the reality is, is you probably had some of those same kind of pressures replacing Luke Luer. I'm sure there was a lot of people that were like, hey, who's this Steve guy? there's
1: no doubt about that there's uh, definitely some uh, startup work to be done when you when you start digging into the weeds
0: you know it's, it's kind of like that in fishing it's when you replace somebody you know i can relate to this you've got to be three times better than them because if you're just as good everybody thinks you're a piece of shit you know it's, you've got such big shoes to fill in someone's mind that you go oof and, and everybody does everything different i mean that's just the reality oh exactly
1: you you end up uh, uh, etching your own personality into what you do, and uh, either the either the public, uh, your your audience, is going to buy into it or it isn't, and uh, and so uh, my my big big uh, deal all the years was uh, as one sports editor who was was my my immediate boss used to say, uh, take me with you. Let me look over your shoulder at what you're doing. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of the way I approached things and made it a, a very relaxed and easy approach and tried to, to be very uh, descriptive in the way I wrote things so that people would feel that they were right along with me uh, doing the experience that they, they couldn't do because they were putting lug nuts on tires and wheels at the Jeep all day.
0: Right. You know, and, and that's one thing that I admire about you because I'm not going to knock anybody or throw any names out there. But in the last 20 plus years, I've had an awful lot of media I've uh, worked with in many different ways, shapes and forms and sometimes in the boat. And me and you spent, I wouldn't say a ton of time in the boat together, but quite a bit through the years. And, you know, you actually wanted to be there. You know, I can tell when somebody's getting a story and when somebody actually enjoys being there, enjoys the company and everything. Um and there's just a lot of guys that I don't really think that they're into it. I think they could write about makeup or something just as well as uh, as outdoor stuff. To be honest.
1: Yeah, I I, I lived it. the uh, the 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 job in a way was was life to me. In other words, and it still is uh, in in many ways that I I could never separate vocation from avocation. It was all this. It was all one cloth to me.
0: You know, there's a quote, I, I did a little research, believe it or not, even though I know you, I have considered pretty well um, a quote when you're one of your final columns that says, I was not born with outdoor skills anymore or any, any more than anyone else so i can't read my own notes that's not in there but so a special thank you to my mentors one and all and that really is true i mean you pick up stuff from so many people through the years i mean so much of my fishing is is based on what guys from the dakotas and minnesota do you know my spinner pulling at ultra slow speeds and um you know stuff that i learned from old buddy old ugly and it, it's just kind of a, everything morphs into what it becomes and there's so many people that, that play a uh a role in things. And I'm sure it was the same for you with, with, uh, the writing.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, just the, the pantheon of, uh, of great people. Like, uh, you know, you know, I think of Jim Foffrich, old ugly himself and Tommy Frisch, the turtle man and, and Bob Archer and Tommy Mayer who invented the, the Tom's walleye lure and all those guys. I learned, I learned about Lake Erie and walleye fishing from them uh, from from virtually from the early days the late you know the late 70s on I knew all those guys back then uh when when lake Erie was just starting to to bloom again so to speak uh algae aside uh, uh and and uh, and become a you know become the the, the world renowned fishery that it is today so uh i had that you know Marion garber the, the the world champion fly caster I learned I learned how to cast from him and and I passed that skill on to a lot of other people uh, over the years but but it all came from from Marion and so I you know people like that all along the line I, even when I when I would write about birds and, and ornithology I had people like Harold Mayfield the late Harold Mayfield in Toledo he is world-renowned ornithologist. Uh, uh, just a, a fabulous guy. So I, I had great guys, and and, and Lou Campbell, uh, who used to be the outdoors editor at the former Toledo Times, Lou Cluer, my predecessor. Yeah, I, I was able to 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 uh, uh, associate with some great people and great uh, national writers too. George Laycock, Erwin uh, Joe Bauer, I knew John Ruthven uh, the the Tremendous wildlife artists down Cincinnati uh, and uh, Bob Hart, who ran outdoor shows all through uh, the the Midwest, Uh, just all kinds of people uh, that uh, was able to associate with that that all helped somehow bits and pieces and some sometimes a lot of big chunks along the way.
0: And you know, the the reality is, is your column, there was a lot of people, you know, that would grab that thing and they would look at that and whether it's a fishing report or finding out what's going on or just getting in the outdoors, it's kind of lost on this generation. Like, I don't think they really get it because they don't have to, you know, you pick up your phone, you know, me and you are texting now. I mean, right. Uh, oh, sure. all of these things that, you know, you can go on the internet, you can listen to this podcast and, and you can get all it's, it's at your fingertips where you used to have to wait for that thing to be delivered on Tuesday, was it Thursday and Sunday? Um, now right. it's, it's at your fingertips 24 seven. Heck you can bring that thing up, you know, um, Monday through Friday at Toledo or outdoor news or, you know, all these different places that you've worked with and, and you get access to these people. It's just, it's almost, it's, it's just hard for people to understand that haven't been through those different phases, I think.
1: Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, I, I started out with a typewriter. I, 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 I did, I did go, go start with something that uh, uh, advanced as a typewriter and a notebook and a ballpoint pen. I, I didn't need a stone tablet and a hammer and chisel.
0: You were only but, a couple of years off of that though, from what I gather. Yeah, I know.
1: I know. Uh, uh, there's no no two ways about that, but at any rate, you know, and I, I went through uh, about eleven different uh, computer systems while I was at the blade, uh, and and started out with the old uh, Texas Instruments uh, uh, on a uh, oh, weighed about seventeen pounds, and 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 you had a, a big roll of uh, electric or electronic impressed uh uh paper it was just it was just unbelievable uh sending stories but we thought it was tremendous because you know you could be sending a story from anywhere and you know you know went into the radio shack uh they called them trash 100s uh the trs 100 uh, battery powered computer and then then all the way on up through the the modern laptops Uh, but i went through 11 different transitions with that and uh, it all helped uh, tremendously and then you know toward toward the end of my career into the into digital you know digital photography I used to shoot film uh, actual real live celluloid film 35 millimeter film uh, and it was just unbelievable because I'd go on these long trips and and get back and I'd have a, a you know 40 50 rolls of film to develop and go through Nowadays, you know, you shoot something on your iPhone or or on a digital camera. You you get all instant feedback. You pick out what you want, press a couple buttons, and bingo, it's it's there. You pick out what you want, press a couple buttons, and bingo, it's it's there.
0: I I I certainly don't have the the age and the the experience that you do, but I can relate to that just with, for me, my early magazine days when I was working for like In Fisherman and some of those other publications, it was slide film. You had to have slide film and it was really expensive to get that developed. Like you said, you didn't know if it was good or bad. You can't redo it once you get back from the trip. And it kind of, nowadays, like you said, we're shooting stuff. I mean, I've been in like Field and Stream Magazine with half page ads or not an ad, but a picture um, you know, of a big walleye or whatever and it's literally off my cell phone, you know.
1: It, oh, exactly. I've I've shot magazine covers with my, my cell phone and it just I, I can't get over it. The, the resolution alone on it is is as good or better than than the finest uh Nikon film cameras I used to use.
0: Well, the re- yeah, the reality is, is just, it's just a point-and-shoot where you don't, I mean, obviously those Nikons will do a better job if we're probably better with them, but they just, they, the cameras, the cell phones just eliminate all the stupid workout, out, you know, it just, they, they, get, the, right. they get the ding-dong out of it, if you know what I'm saying.
1: Absolutely, but, absolutely. But let's
0: go back to, I mean, I don't want to like harp and be like, you know, I'm 100 years old either. But, I mean, some of the old stuff is, I think, the, the things that people probably don't know as much. Because everybody, you know, talks about last week and they forget, you know, the, the earlier days. And going back to, like, some of the mentors and things like that. I think the one thing that, that is lost nowadays, and again, I don't want to, like, harp on this too much. But, again, when you go on YouTube and you search all these things, you don't really know who has street cred. You know what I mean? And And exactly. you, you gave me... After you know, I, I got vetted pretty heavily, and obviously we'll we'll talk about Old Man for J.K., Old Ugly, um, but you know that's how we met. I think is I'm almost right. certain. But um, the reality is, is you know you just didn't put anybody in your column. I mean you had, you vetted those guys, and probably when they didn't even know when they were being vetted. But um, nowadays, again, there's so many of these outlets and so much information out there, but you don't you don't know who's the real deal. I mean it's it's and it would be a lot tougher to probably be a writer nowadays because of that. Exactly. Uh, uh, it's
1: it's very very hard because because everybody's got a bullhorn now with the internet. Anybody can do it, and <laughs> and unless unless you've got uh, a way to vet what you're looking at, if you're not thinking about that, you can just get led down led down the primrose path.
0: Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just, a, it's a different world. Obviously, things are better and it it is what it is. But uh, some of these things, I guess if you, uh, you're old school a little bit, it's it's tough to swallow. Just be, I don't know, just things with, um, again, how people do do business. You know what I mean? Like the kids nowadays with the mentoring. I, I don't know if some of the newer generations really want to even be mentored. You know what I mean?
1: Yes, I, yes, I do. And uh, I wanted to touch on something you had mentioned about the old days and so on. One of the things that both the outdoors uh, communications profession and even the major media today is is losing is the professional ethics and standards of old fashioned newspaper journalism. And uh, it was it was. a very very uh difficult thing for me to 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 witness how how much that has eroded uh again anybody anybody with a bullhorn is supposedly an expert now and and if they if it's packaged with a lot of flash and dash uh and people aren't thinking about being discerning in what they're reading or watching or listening to uh they're they're, they're getting smoked.
0: Well, and, and, and listen, we're doing a podcast right now. I mean, I'd like to think that I got street cred after 20 years of making my living doing this and, and done pretty well with it, but the reality is, is there's a lot of people out there with podcasts, and anybody can do it. I mean, it doesn't really cost a lot to do it. It's it's not like, you know, again, in, in the Blade. I mean, heck, even when you were there, I mean, how many outdoor writers were even in Ohio that were full-time outdoor writers?
1: There were There was a small handful, and... And we we stuck together pretty well. The the newspaper guys, the the big the big time newspaper guys, there were only probably a half a dozen of us, and we all had a different standard by which uh, our writing was uh, judged, because because we were trained uh, journalists. And because our editors expected us to produce the same quality and discernment in outdoors writing as any investigative news story uh, reporter would do, uh, and those are those are standards that are are and have gotten lost, and uh, and that's a shame because uh, we pay the price by by dealing with a lot of. Misinformation, disinformation, and outright lies.
0: Are you saying fake news is even in the outdoors? Fake news? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You know that, that that term has gotten pretty broad here in the last couple of years, hasn't it?
1: Oh yeah, it's 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 pretty broad, but it's uh, it, it's uh, it's hard. Again, you have to be paying attention to uh, what it is you're you're reading, who did it you know, lots of times when I look up, uh, background information, uh, on the internet, I always look and see where it's, where it's really ultimately from. And, uh, you know, I want to make sure it's like university research or, or government-based research or
0: some. And and even then you don't know, really? Well, that's true. Uh, you got
1: to make sure that the, the politics are strained out of it. But, uh, there's, you, you just can't pick up anything off the internet and assume it's right because you can basically assume it's wrong unless proven otherwise.
0: Well, I mean, and again, I don't want to sh- be a shit stir, but you know, I kind of am. So, um, I mean, there you could even name that there are major nor- not not talking outdoors right now, just magazines or print <coughs> uh, newspapers in general where you can have one magazine. Let's call it the ABC Gazette. And on the East Coast, they have one title. And on the West Coast, they have another title, or in the middle America, you know what I mean, for the same article. Yeah. And it basically, it's feeding off of what they think that that customer base wants to hear. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's kind of like, I guess, I don't know, I, I, those are things that are just tough to swallow. I guess it's a little salesmanship. I understand that those things come into play. But again, just the credibility. It's just, man, in our world, if you don't have credibility, you don't have much.
1: Exactly. I mean, see, in fact, uh, uh, I think it was uh, Kluwer might have told me that you know the only thing you got to sell to your readers is your credibility. Hard, you, hard to
0: get, you, easy to lose, right?
1: You 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 lose that cred, and and your your column isn't worth the paper it's printed on, or or now the uh, the the web address it's broadcast on.
0: Well, you know, and, and I got a ton of cred from you, um, you know, being in your column for, because I mean, I was literally probably in my teens at that time when we first kind of started doing some stuff with with Foffridge Jr. and Sr. And uh, again, you know, I was winning some tournaments and some things like that. And, you know, Foffridge saw some things in me and he took me for a little bit of a ride there to, uh, you know, onto bigger and better things, fortunately. And the reality is is. That's kind of getting back to that mentor thing a little bit. I just think it's so important, and it's so it's so lost upon you know the latter generations compared to like these guys either don't want to help or a lot of kids. I get these kids that come up to me and they're like, you know, they just say, "Hey, you know, we're going to whoop your ass," and I'm like, "Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) Let me know how that works out for you." But the reason I put you in my columns is
1: because when I went fishing with you, we caught fish. And we caught good fish, and you knew why you caught good fish, and where you caught good fish, and when, and so on. It, it, it just uh, you produced results, and and you knew what you were talking about. I can, uh, tr- I it, tr- just, and that's that's uh, really really, uh, it's it's just so critical.
0: I can remember one time fishing with you. We were up uh, north of the border there and we were fishing, and uh, I remember you, you had told me. And this this was earlier on in our stuff, I think, together before we got, I don't know if I want to dare say, tight. Um, but you know, it's one of those deals. You can't fake it when it's just me and you in the boat. I don't know if you remember this trip or not, but it was during the Mayfly hatch, and everybody was like, oh, you just went, we can't catch them, we can't catch them. And we went up there and we, we did some fish, some spinners kind of slow, and I switched up to a half ounce sinker from a three-quarter-ounce sinker, and that made all the difference because the way that the current was swinging around, and I told you that as we were doing it, and I remember you just laughing because you're like, man, this thing is, this is a science, isn't it? And on that trip there, I mean, me and you were just like, I mean, you got to see that happen, and I know as a guy that, you know, that wasn't like your end-all, be-all thing, but you liked that process, and I think that's, is that fair to say that, you know, walleye fishing might not have been your favorite thing to do in the world, but you like seeing the process and the development as a risk.
1: That was that. I, you know, I remember that day very, very well. It was up on the northeast side of Peely.
0: We don't need and, to tell them too much now.
1: <laughs> and hmm. and we we uh we cleaned some clock that day. That was just unbelievable.
0: We caught some giants when everybody said it's the mayfly hatch. You can't catch them, right?
1: It's exactly exactly, and uh, you know, we had pictures to prove it. Uh, But uh, people were still shaking their heads after they saw the pictures and read the column.
0: You know, I can remember that I was back in my 20s then and, you know, still get emails from people after that. Oh, those pictures weren't real. That was that's from long ago. And I guess that's when you're in your 20s, you take that with a little more, um, you know, you don't take it like you do now. You know what I mean? You look at that now as a um, as a badge of honor. Back then you take that as an assault. But um, yeah, I guess it is what it is. Right. Sure, sure. So, you know, the one thing that I think about when I think of you is, is traveling around. And I mean, I don't know how many stories you've told me through the days, most of which I, I'd, I'd like to. We could probably do 10 of these things, I guess, is, is the point. Um, but back in the, in the when you went to the Arctic, I think it was in the, like the late 90s. Uhhuh. You know, I think that's the thing that separates you from a lot of the other outdoor writer guys because again you went out there and you did it. I don't even know if it's even possible nowadays to do that, whether it's cost or getting out of the office or the fact that there's damn near no outdoor real writers left. But um I mean you went out there and, and again you you were like more like a travel blogger, I guess is what we would call it nowadays, right? If you're a young guy, like well, that's what that's kind of what you were doing almost.
1: Well the when I, I got appointed outdoors editor directly by Paul Block, Jr., who was the, the late publisher of the Blade. And when, when I, he called me into his office, uh, he said, uh, I'm not, I don't want to beat around the bush. He says, I want you to be my outdoors editor. He says, I want you to go all over the world just like Kluwer did. He says, the only thing I'm going to ask is just do the Blade some good. And that was, that, those were my marching orders, and I never looked back. And he wanted to he wanted personally to vicariously live in these rugged, faraway places and have these adventures and see things and do things through my eyes because he couldn't. He was, you know, he was older and he was also a newspaper publisher and a a world renowned uh, biochemist, believe it or not. I did not know that. Yeah, he was uh, he was actually a biochemist by. That's what he loved to do. He was a newspaper publisher by family birthright. So, but it was a, a strange combination. But the 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 deal was, you know, I had I had basically a, a something of a blank check to, to go and do as I wanted, and uh, and just do the paper some good. So I started doing things I wanted to do. Yeah, my my first trip into the arctic was uh, to to go uh uh winter living on the land with the inuit people up by Ungava bay below baffin island in the arctic in the middle of winter and i went up and and we hunted caribou uh to uh uh feed, help help send meat to uh some of the relatives from another village uh that were, had run out of meat for the winter. And these people are very uh, meat and uh, and sea mammal, marine mammal dependent, you know, seals and things like that. And I still remember, you know, running with uh, Sandy Ananak and, and his his father-in-law, Stanley Ananak. Uh, we went, oh, my God, uh, almost a day by snowmobile up into the Torngat Mountains between uh, Labrador and, and Quebec on the east side of Ungava Bay, uh, trying to scare up some caribou and, uh, and, you know, we got a couple and, and when we took them back on a, on a sled, they, they stuck the, the hindquarters on a bush plane for Nain Labrador on the coast to, to send to their relatives. Uh, it was just unbelievable. You know, I froze my hands solid on that trip too. And that's not fun when they thaw out.
0: Yeah, I I actually, I don't know if you even know this. I got to spend, uh, it was one of my dad's last hunting trips when he just knew, you know, he's probably not going to be able to physically do it much more. Uh, We were in northern Alaska there, and the guy actually wanted me to run his fishing camp. And he was going, my dad was going on a bear hunt. And the long and the short of it is I ended up staying like 20-some days there. And we also spent a few days in an Inuit village. Um, The one place we were at was Glosovia, Alaska, which is just above the Arctic Circle. And it's actually uh-huh. an old Russian mining town. And, again, you're you're with guys that were two of these guys. Uh, Dewey Helverson and I did Rod Racer. And Jerry Austin was the main guy. It's funny because I can't remember breakfast, but I remember these guys' names. And Jerry just passed away here a little bit ago. But Jerry was, like, in DEA back in the day, like, South American drug uh, war stuff. And he literally yeah. moved to Alaska after that. And the people up there are just characters is what I'm getting at. And you know this guy was the first guy inducted in the Iditarod Hall of Fame, and he was an absolute mountain man. And it's it's a different world. It's 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 not being cool. You know what I mean? It's it's not street cred up there. It's living and it's just surviving. Yep, yep. Just exactly. like you said, when, when the plane comes and and they're not they're not taking pictures of, of horns. They need they're like give me the meat so we can get through the winter time.
1: That's exactly right. So I That's mean, you
0: exactly right. And, and some of those people that you, you meet on these trips, I'm sure that, you know, while you probably never get to see them again, you probably don't forget them because it just, it's it's a different bond that you have. You know, it's kind of like when we're doing this podcast. They, I said, the, the podcast to me are modern day camp stories, because even though me and you talk every now and then, uh, it's not enough. Right. And, and we talk, we don't even sit down and talk about all these stories that much, even though we did here a couple of weeks ago um, to keep these things kind of alive, if you will.
1: Oh, exactly. Uh, and they're. Uh, a, a great outdoors adventure is timeless whether it happened in 1985 or 2015
0: that, that's that's right i think sometimes time makes them better they're like fish stories sometimes that you know fish stories get bigger as they go right but that walleye oh, was, yeah. was 30 pounds but but they truly do get better i mean probably one of mine too that i i'd never i could hear a thousand times and i'm sure everybody listening at home will as well is the i don't even know what you call it but when you did um it wasn't transatlantic, but you were on a sailboat for, like, forever. I mean, I don't I, oh, I right. remember the specifics on that one. That's definitely why I want to hear this one for my own selfish reasons, if nothing else.
1: Well, my, my uh, uh, longtime friend, Rex Damschroeder, uh, uh, who's a pilot and a sailor, uh, decided to do a transatlantic circuit in a thir- 32-foot uh, sailboat. And uh, he uh, he needed crew for different legs of the circuit. and he had uh, they left Port Clinton and sailed uh, sailed down Lake Erie, uh, Welland uh, Canal or Erie Canal or something to down Lake Ontario down to st. Lawrence and across the North Atlantic to uh, to England and then down to Portugal and uh, the the, his crewman there uh his 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 hand his mate uh flew home and then another guy flew out to portugal and met up and they went down through the azores and so on and that guy came home cuz rex wanted to do a crossing solo and he came across uh uh to uh, uh barbados in uh, the southern caribbean there by himself he said he was about one 400 page book short he said it was a, a pretty crazy crossing alone because you have to get wake up every 15 minutes or so to to look around to make sure there aren't any big ships around because they won't even see you out there and they just run over you and he says, even though that's comforting yeah even though the even though the, the chances are small he said, "You have to do it if you want to survive." And he made the crossing. Well, anyway, uh, short story long, I met him down in uh, St. Lucia, uh, and uh, and another guy, uh, uh, Ron Randolph from uh, Toledo. We we met him down there and and crewed up through the Lesser Antilles, and uh, uh, and had a uh, it was a, a tremendous uh, trip. Uh, we got. We got hung up on a, a fishing buoy in the dark. I was I was able to. Uh, we each took turns at the, and in, in the cockpit on the tiller. It was a tiller steer, and uh, I I got to sail the whole night. Uh, steer I uh, steering by the North Star, just like the old uh, old time uh, Arabian sailors used to do, uh, up the uh, the west coast of uh, Guadalupe. I'll, I'll never forget it because uh, uh, Rex and, and Ron were, were taking a turn getting some shut-eye below deck. And uh, and I was out there all alone under the stars. And, you know, you had all this phosphorescent uh, foam coming off the, the ship uh, or the boat. Uh, it's, uh, it's little uh, sea creatures that light up when they're disturbed. And it had this green neon glow all around the boat and in the wake as we sailed up and i I just kept steering on the north star or or, you know a few points off the north star to keep my course until dawn it was it was just the coolest thing you ever you can ever imagine to 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 have experienced that
0: and what year was this approximately
1: this would have been around uh 2007 uh, and what happened was I, 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 got off the boat at Antigua and, uh, and, and flew home and then Rex and Ron just hopped a couple more islands to, uh, Puerto Rico and put the boat up for a couple, for a month or so. And, uh, then Rex had another crewman, uh, meet him down in Puerto Rico. Again, they got going, they came across the Bermuda triangle and up. Uh, into the Intracoastal Waterway, and they sailed up through uh, coastal Virginia to Chesapeake Bay. And uh, I'm, I came back and joined Rex uh, to crew with a, a guy from Port Clinton named Jim Crawford. He was actually the, the librarian in Port Clinton at the time, but he was also a sailor. And we met him right, uh, right at a dock near the U.S. Naval Academy, and uh, we sailed up Chesapeake Bay to the uh, Chesapeake-Delaware Canal and switched, crossed over into uh, the right by the mouth of the Delaware River into Delaware Bay we came down Delaware Bay around uh, Cape May, New Jersey, up the east coast of Jersey, ran into a hellacious storm right at Sandy Hook, which is the main entrance uh, channel's into new york harbor and uh and got actually keeled over in the storm even though we had the the sails uh sheeted for uh storm and uh it was a it was a, a quite a religious experience to say the least uh i still remember cooking in the galley uh after the storm when we were finally at anchor and uh it was it was quite a day the the next day we sailed under the verrazano narrows bridge and it was the fourth of july we motored right up past the uh uh, statue of liberty which was pretty cool and then uh, then we went up the hudson river uh not under sail but under motor because we were you it was tough tough going against the current so you know we just motored up the the hudson to uh, the erie canal and we stepped the mast, uh, because you, because, of the bridges and so on crossing the canal. And I got off there and, uh, and, and went home and, uh, and Rex, uh, uh, stored the boat in a, a boat yard there for a, a week or so. He went home then he came back with, uh, the first guy that, that crewed and they, they came back up, uh. They they crossed the Erie Canal and and came down uh, uh, Lake Erie to Port Clinton again, and I met them there. But it was uh, it was a heck of a trip. Uh, the 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 stories are getting uh, hooked up uh, got caught uh, our keel got caught on a uh, an errant rope from a fishing buoy a commercial fishing buoy off uh, All Saints Island down in the the Antilles and Rex had to crawl and put on dive gear, uh, scuba, not scuba, but, uh,
0: snorkel and uh, like
1: Yeah. a uh, snorkel, snorkel and, and mask and, and knife and go down and cut, cut us loose while I was holding, uh, a floodlight down off the stern and in about seven foot seas and Ron watched for sharks. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a little
0: tense. You know, uh, the, the one thing I think about stories like this is obviously if you're not into adventure, like there's some people that just want to sit home and watch Netflix, right? And that's fine. And then there's guys that are a little more adventuresome. And obviously you definitely fit into that category. But even with this said, sometimes it's a lot easier and more fun to tell the stories now because while that's a great story, I think you'd have to be out of your mind a little bit to not be nervous or when things are going on like that. I mean, is that fair to say? I mean, we got sharks and we're ropes and we're six, just six, seven foot sees alone is a pain in the ass yeah it's uh you know
1: i i don't know what it is i i never would get too nervous because it it, it's one of those things you get nervous afterwards because you just got so much going on that if you don't focus on on you know getting yourself out of the situation uh you're you know you're going to go down the tubes and so uh you know, I guess I I guess I sweated a lot after we got loose from that that buoy because I mean it was pitch dark. You know, we we didn't know why the heck I was at the I was at the at the tiller actually when we stopped. And the reason the reason I knew it is we had we were under full sail, and all of a sudden we weren't going anywhere. I looked at the the you know the I said Rex I says get up here I said we're under full sail, but the boat's not moving, <laughs> and and that's when we found out that we were we were snagged on this uh, this line from this fishing buoy, an uh, unmarked, just out in the middle of nowhere fishing buoy that was anchored on the bottom. So, just unexpected eventualities like that have always been uh, interesting. I, I've had a few.
0: Well, I, I can tell you one. I'm I'm going to give you a little story that uh, you definitely probably don't need any rehashing on, but me and you together with my buddy Big Steve got us in a little bit of a shit storm. Do you remember that?
1: Oh, yes, I do. Wasn't that uh, I, uh, north side of, of Kelly's?
0: I believe that the name of the story was Two Times What or something like that, uh, because I think the forecast was for like two or two or less or two to fours or something, and and again, I, I have no idea before I even tell this story how big the waves were, because as again, to mention Old Ugly, I remember um, again, just how these things all kind of come together. I was probably 14, 15 years old on the boat with Fafrich Sr., and we were in some shit. And he, uh, I said to him, I says, you know, Captain Jim, how, how big are these waves? And again, I'm not old enough to know any better till way afterwards what he was doing, but he says, son, I've never measured a wave a day in my life. And I use that line almost weekly with people. Because, That's, you know, it's a reality. I, mean, I hear people all the time with just, like, fish stories, like, oh, we were 10-footers. I'm like, well, I was out in that lake, and I don't think you and your boat were in 10-footers. But um the reality is he was doing it to calm me down, right? Or not to, you know, Yeah. get bent out of shape as old Ugly had that kind of dry, uh, you know, he was a character, right? But Oh,
1: there's no two ways about it. Yeah, I was I was out in uh, a few of those kind of days uh, when when we fished. I was on I was on a single spin uh, fishing team when we competed in the early tournaments uh, out on the lake there. And there were days I, I still remember. One year uh, I wasn't on the crew that year, but uh, he was out. He had a, a oh a little. It was a oh you he know, called it an organized beer can. He had a big two hundred fifty horse outboard on a, a little cuddy cabin i can't even remember the name of the boat but uh they were out there they needed one more fish before they got in a thunderstorm came up you know it's where they were this still back in the casting days you know, you'd cast the line and the line would go up in the air not not to the water and uh but what he did he he opened the open uh he flooded the boat to about knee deep to get it down and heavy in the water and, and they, they kept on fishing, and, and they caught their fish in this thunderstorm, and, and then he pumped the boat out, and they came back in and got back in in time. It was just absolutely insane, but they, they, he knew exactly what he was doing, even though there was a risk. He, he knew what he he knew what he was doing and, and they got back
0: <laughs> well, those are stories you can only only tell when uh, when things are over with because uh the insurance guys probably have a heart attack i oh i know, oh my God. I know yeah, guys he, that used to do the same thing for pulling spinners at ultra slow speeds they they'd get that boat in this so the boat wouldn't go anywhere wouldn't surge off the waves unfortunately you'd be in deep duty if your pumps didn't work too but
1: yeah oh exactly but they, they'd they'd all still be out there if his pump didn't work
0: i can tell you approximately i believe it was 2006 or 2007 where we kind of started talking about that the story that took place north of kelly's two times water whatever that title that story was i don't know if you remember or not yes but so we were in the parking lot if you remember and i had my right hand man big steve who's just he's he's the type of guy i'll just preface this by saying he don't get rattled and you don't want to mess with him is that fair enough
1: Oh, that's totally fair enough.
0: Yeah, he he's 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 security. We call him. um People always just wonder how me and him are such good friends, but he's certainly a yeah, guy you don't want to not be friends with. I can tell you that. Um, exactly. Anyhow, and if you remember this, we were in the parking lot, and uh, Steve, of course, was busting chops, and you know, um, not other Steve, not not Steve Pollock here, but and right. and me and you were talking. You said to me, Bub. He says, I just really appreciate it. it's getting harder and harder. This this is. Almost just before you retired, a few years, I would guess. Yeah. Um, and you said, Bub, it's getting real hard to uh, to get in and out of the office and get you know get as many of these things in. And I said, I just appreciate you, you know, getting me out here and that you know we're going to get a good story out of this. And you're like, what were you going to say again? And I was going to tell you, hey, I just got a bad feeling. And as funny as this Jim Fiferish Jr. as quirky as he was, he and I think you'd go with this, he had that quirky sense of just. And this is again before cell phone stuff with Jimmy Jr where he just knew about, like, weather stuff. It was like he was like a 90-year-old man, and he could feel it in his joints or something. I don't know how many times he would say, hey, wrap them up, we're going in, and everybody would be like, what the hell? It's new, and it's, everything's nice. And sure enough, we wouldn't be halfway in, and here's the storm coming, you know? And again, uh-huh. before radar. And I had that, oh, yeah. I had that same kind of feeling, and uh, I, was saying, well, I, I was thinking about maybe just saying, hey, let's go to breakfast, and it just, you know, because, again, that was April. The water's 30-some degrees, bad deal, and... uh Anyhow, we, we venture out, and sort of people can kind of visualize this. People from around the Ohio area, for sure. We were basically between the Bass Islands and, and west of Kelly's. And when we came around the hooked around, come around the north side of Kelly's, I don't know how big the waves were. I'm gonna say that they were 10 footers, but it who knows? Doesn't matter. I can tell you though that my boat. The motor was gurgling because it was barely in the water, and at the time it was a Ranger 620, and the entire console forward was out of the water, and there was so much gap. Um, it was unbelievable, if you remember this, where you, you couldn't turn around. Like, I, went, I could not turn around. I had a boat that will do, at the time, roughly 60 miles an hour, and I'm doing, like, 8 to 10 miles an hour at wide open throttle, if you remember that.
1: I certainly do, and I think that wave was about 100 feet tall.
0: <laughs> I tell you, you know what, when you're sitting there in a boat, it, it could have been a hundred, it could've been ninety, it don't matter, but it it, it feels like it was three hundred. But you know all, the, I,
1: all I remember is that when I broke over the
0: stern. Well don't get ahead of don't steal my thunder now. <laughs> don't steal my thunder. <laughs> If you remember this, I mean, this is just, it's funny to me now, again, this is like when I asked you earlier about how is it easier to tell these things now because you don't get rattled, but those waves were so close together as we get with those current draws and that bottleneck areas there between the islands where it goes from shallow to deep and the wind just, it just picked up at the perfect time and there was really nobody out. It was during the week. And, um, any rate, if you can kind of visualize this guy sitting at home, I can't turn the boat around. Like I can't and you know, I've got I've got a big Steve sitting back there with me who is truthfully one of the best boat drivers that I've ever been around and I'm on the wheel and I don't know what to do because I can't go anywhere. It's like someone's like holding the tiger by its tail and finally there was a little bit of a dip in between these two waves and I just gunned it if you remember did a 90 degree and rode the trough and then basically went from like zero to a hundred and then to zero again. And I had drift bags tied up in the back end and Steve and me threw those out, which is drift bags are a really good thing when you get into nasty weather, if, if they help basically position the boat. I'm mean, not talking necessarily about fishing. Um, sure. But at any rate, if we set up, if you remember this, and I remember you just kind of looking at me like, what the hell are we doing? Like, oh, we're going to set some lines up. Well, again, that was kind of the guide coming out in me, you know what I mean? More of like, hey, yeah. it's not really about fishing, but I knew I couldn't drive into these things because we would we have sunk the bow for sure, right? I mean, just guaranteed. You. So I'm like, okay, we're going to have to basically drift. We're going to put some drift bags out. We're going to throw rods out to make us feel good. Um and again I had Big Steve with me. Without him, I mean that's I mean he's he's like worth ten people's hands at, at that time. And I don't even like saying this out loud because now he has a record of me saying this and giving him a compliment, which is horrific, especially if you have ever meet him. But um so we set these lines up and we got these two drift bags and we are basically going from zero to five miles an hour as we ride up and down on these waves. But if you can picture, we're just trying to basically get where we're parallel with the corner of Kelly's Island so that I can try to trough over. Because these waves are so steep and so close together, there's no way that I can go into a following sea with them. I mean, I don't care how big a boat you would have had. You, I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, that Edmund Fitzgerald's sitting on the bottom for a reason, right? That's right. And I'm,
1: getting que- I'm getting queasy while you're talking about yeah,
0: it. Yeah, I, I won't say exactly some of the things that might have transpired. I'm going to let you save face on a few things there. But so the things that i just never will forget about this day even though i'd probably like to forget the whole thing i guess that'd be no fun is we start catching fish and these waves are so good if you remember this i took a rod out of your hand and handed it to steve big steve and handed another rod to you and you're like what's going on i'm like ah this one's a lot bigger and you said you said you can tell in these conditions i said well normally i probably could but i said i saw him come through the wave do you remember that yes I. Do. Where the, the fish do. literally got pulled through the wave because we weren't catching them that deep and the the fish literally were like they were getting pulled between waves and we'd see them shot between <laughs> and and shortly thereafter is where where you had alluded what happened so i can remember looking back and i was kneeling down on hooking a fish and if i remember correctly we had three fish laying on the bottom of the boat because yeah. we, we pretty much just straight up were catching, and and one of those got used as a picture in, in your blade column, yeah. um, but nevertheless, I remember looking up and seeing Big Steve's look on his face like someone just grabbed him by the gonads, and again he's an animal. You don't I've never seen that face I don't think since, and as that's happening, he was looking the uh, the other way. A wave came. Visualize this with me, people. A wave came from the back went over my motor, went over my head, landed on the front deck of my boat, hit the windshield, sounded like shotgun blasts going off. Now, Mr. Pollock here was sitting between the consoles looking backwards. I literally lost eyesight of him because my entire boat was full of water to the gunnels, right to the cap. And I remember handing the bucket to Big Steve, and I said, you're the co-captain, you do the dirty work, because I always have a bucket in my boat for many things. It's everything If we call it the brown trout bucket to the uh, you know fish count bucket, right? And he's bailing water, and I've got both my pumps going. I got two 750 gallon pumps per hour, and they're just going. But I I mean, my battery compartment, everything's underwater. Everything in the boat. My net. Do you remember I netted my my bait cooler as it floated out the boat? I remember. We're knee deep in water. It's April. It's 30 some degrees out. The air temperature is probably 40 something. I don't remember. But I know that I just look at you, and you look like a drowned rat, and I just remember throwing some things around there we probably can't say out loud even today. But the gist of it was it could have been a really, really, really bad deal. Not that we were in good shape then. Thank God my Mercury started because if that wouldn't have started, I mean, it was everything in the boat was submerged, you know, electrical, everything. Yeah, I know. That's, that's a bad deal, and not much so after.
1: Hearing that motor start was one of the sweetest uh, noises I ever heard.
0: I mean, you know, and and that's why it, it kind of things like that make me think about things. I, I I honestly work with some of the best companies on the planet, and I've turned down quite a bit of money to you know work with different manufacturers through the years because I, I really wanted to to work with the stuff that I felt was the best. And when you get into circumstances like this, again, not to sound dramatic, but that's a life changing deal right there. If that motor <laughs> doesn't start, it's a bad deal. Like
1: yeah, we we'd have, we'd have been we'd have been in the. In deep doo doo, right then. We were already in deep doo doo. But if the motor hadn't started,
0: we, we really were. When this happens, it's never good. When this happens during the middle of the week, it's bad. It's even worse. When this happens in the water's thirty some degrees, it's really really bad. Like. This is a bad deal. I mean, thankfully, you know, we had enough of the right gear on and stuff, and it wasn't like, you know... Not that we were dry, but most people are not prepared to, like, physically get in the shower and then turn the... Like, get in a bath with your rain gear, right? That's exactly right. I mean, you don't wear boots that go up to your chin, so... At any rate, again, if you can kind of visualize this, we had drifted just enough and got enough water out of the boat because, again, you can't, even if that motor starts, you've got to get water out because you can't try to put a boat on plane with another 3,000 pounds of water or whatever it is in there, right? Exactly right. So we kind of just threw the gear down, and I remember looking, I I doubt you remember exactly what I said, but I do because me and Steve, uh, Big Steve, talk about it all the time. I remember looking at him. I said, This is going to be a nasty ride. So, unless you break something, including your bones, I said, Don't say a word because we're just going to do this. And I mean, I white knuckled, drove that thing on troughs. I mean, I was down in a trough and I'm doing 60 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, whatever it would have been, probably 50, 55. And then I'm back to zero as I crest over the waves, if you remember. <laughs> I sure do. And then once we got towards that gravel dock on the west side of Kelly's, I mean, there were still like four or five-foot waves on the leeward side of the island that was protected in tight there. And I kind of knew then, I think we all kind of knew, like, hey, we really escaped one. I mean, I almost even thought, because people need to realize like how serious this was. I even thought about going into, as I was driving, I don't think I even shared this with you, even though we were roughly four miles from home at that point, because of us being wet and not knowing what the conditions would be on that South Passage, I thought seriously about tying up at Kelly's Island and getting help there somewhere because this, this could have been like hypothermia. I mean, this is a bad deal.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And I don't know if you remember the the last half of this, but we were the only rig in the parking lot. Shocker. (laughs) And I remember hearing a noise the whole time because I was just focused, dialed in, in the zone, whatever you want to call it, white knuckled for sure. And when I pulled into that dock in, in Marblehead, I can just remember seeing a guy that I know at the dock said, "You dumb son of a bitch," because the Coast Guard had been, you know, put out, and some guys passed away that day. If you remember, and, and we yes, actually, yes, I do. We had a Coast Guard helicopter that actually had followed us halfway in, and that was the noise that we were hearing. And I don't, I never even asked you, I guess, if you even knew that that was a helicopter at the time that, out of Marblehead right there, because um, I, I couldn't look anywhere than than on, you know, right in front of me basically.
1: I think I think I was concentrated concentrating on on one of your number one rules: don't leave the boat.
0: <laughs> yeah, I only have a couple um, and that, that's that's the one. stay in the boat and don't get drunk, and we don't let guys drink in the boat, so usually number one is is, is trump's just about everything, but
1: yeah i, I was I was not worried about uh, Coast Guard helicopters or anything else besides keeping my rear end in the boat.
0: And again, that's one of those things as people tell these stories. I, I, I say that now 15 roughly years later. It, that's not like something that you really boast about. You know, th- that was one of those storms that was a pocketed thing. I can remember talking to the Coast Guard guys later and they said that they knew it was going to be a bad deal because it came out of nowhere. And, and that's the thing people don't real about the, the, the Great Lakes is we get these little pocket storms that aren't something that are really predictable. And they just kind of show up like the Bermuda Triangle stuff. And they put you in a bad way, and when you're out there in that cold of water, it's a bad, bad, bad deal.
1: Yeah. Oh, we'd we have never left. Uh, we'd have never left the dock if uh, if we'd have known it was going to be like that.
0: No, and it wasn't. I mean, it, it literally in the 10 to 15 minutes from us leaving Marblehead to getting to Kelly's, because that's roughly a five, maybe six mile boat ride there. Um, it went from zero to 100. I mean, if we would have literally left 10 minutes later, we wouldn't have left. Exactly, but and again, the thing that I think nowadays people and I—you hear stuff and everybody sensationalizes everything. Like we were talking about, joking about the journalism and fake news and stuff. That—that's a cool story to tell, but that's not a cool story to put yourself in position on on purpose. Like you don't. This is not. This is totally an accidental thing. And again, of the millions of days that seemingly that I fished out there, roughly four thousand actually. You don't put yourself in those circumstances anywhere on purpose and if you do you are really a dumb SOB
1: yeah that's that's that is not that was not an assignment uh you volunteer for ahead of time
0: but it makes a hell of a story Steve
1: it sure does I've I've had a few like that before that one's memorable it made a hell of a column too
0: yeah me me and big Steve I don't know if it's just the character driven or the number of days together but we had one for a story for another day but we had something similar on uh near the St. Lawrence Seaway on Lake Ontario where me and him got into. And it was uh, ugh, not, not, a, not a fun day. But those boat rides like that, I, I'm pretty sure that I'd be 6'5 if I hadn't taken but a few of those out of the, the
1: books. <laughs> they they do tend to compress the spine a bit.
0: And, and, you know, another one that, again, I think people will love, and I don't even remember the whole length of it, but uh, when you went, didn't you go to Kenya in a, from a small plane traveling here somewhere in Ohio? Oh,
1: yeah. Uh, that was the same Rex Dam shoulder, but this would have been. So uh, Rex is
0: your big Steve. Is basically what we're here.
1: Yeah, yeah, basically it. Uh, Rex uh, was uh, grew up in a flying family, and and he bec- he got a pilot's license early on, and found a, a good way to make money was to ferry single engine bush planes to Africa to deliver them to missionaries. And uh, because it's it's easier to f- put extra gas tanks in a little plane if you're half nuts and, and fly it across the North Atlantic and the Sahara Desert and deliver them to the missionaries than it is to dismantle a plane and put it on a boat and reassemble it because there aren't any or aren't many good aircraft mechanics in Africa. So... He got into the business in college, and at the time was the youngest pilot to ferry a plane across the Atlantic. Uh, he made he made headlines in Europe because he he bounced into a potato field out of gas in Ireland uh, on on the first way the first time over, but it didn't stop him. He he kept ferrying planes. I don't remember what number i was but i was the last one he did and we we flew a cessna 210 centurion turbocharged uh it's uh, it was the the high wing uh plane but it had retractable landing gear and it was uh it was a really nice plane i i actually learned to fly for this trip with rex and uh, we left fostoria ohio and flew to uh, the Goose Bay, Labrador. From Goose Bay, Labrador, we flew across the south tip of Greenland to Reykjavik, Iceland. And from Reykjavik, we flew uh, down uh, over Stornoway, Scotland, and and England, Wales, and then England itself, and landed on uh, Jersey, one of the Channel Islands off the coast of France, and then we flew to Naples, Italy, and then uh, down uh, across the Mediterranean, east across the Mediterranean, and down the uh, uh, Nile River to Luxor, Egypt, and then made our last uh, our last leg, uh, 2,023 miles and 14 hours airborne to uh, uh, Nairobi, Kenya, down the uh, Great Rift Valley. And uh, the the adventures on that one uh, are are a, a, a long story that uh, that that go beyond the the scope of uh, the you know the podcast right now. But
0: uh, was we, there any jail time involved or any, anything like that with any of these trips? Well,
1: we we were threatened with jail time coming out of the country because when we landed at. Uh, it's called wilson field that's where all the bush planes from the cattle ranchers and whatnot come into we didn't go into jomo Kenyatta international airport where the big airliners go in and the first thing we wanted to do when we got there was pee because we'd been aloft 14 hours and
0: there are no uh, there
1: are no there are no restrooms in a cessna 210 and uh, and so, anyways, uh, uh, we uh, got there and handed our passports. And we had uh, crew uniforms on, hats and epa- you know, shirts with the epaulets and the the hash marks and all this stuff. Uh, and and that that was another story why we were dressed that way. But anyway, we handed our passports, went to the bathroom. These guys looked at our passports and handed them back. Well, flight crews are not are not required to have visas uh for 72 hours you get 72 hours in country and then you're off and gone again so they don't do a visa well we came in posing as a flight crew and and so they didn't stamp our visas as entering kenya and so Rex and I proceeded down to the New Stanley Hotel in Nairobi. That's where all the white hunters, like Hemingway, and I don't all know those. how
0: you remember all this. I can't even remember what I had for breakfast, and I and i got less years under me than you.
1: Yeah. Well, we went there and celebrated with sundowners, which is the the the, the white hunter drink. But anyways, then we went on a we went on a we went on a hot air balloon safari down in the Maasai Mara country, and anyways we're. We're going to leave the country uh, through Jomo Kenyatta. The first thing we do, we run up, turn in our passports and says, where's your entry visas? You guys are in this country illegally.
0: I mean, you do look like a drug runner. I mean, just for fair shades.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you what, we were sweating bullets. Uh, We talked our way past this guy, and we had been warned, one thing you never do is try to bribe a local official. Because they'll throw you in jail without trial for six months and they said you don't want to be in a kenyan jail white man at for, all
0: for six months yeah I, I could assume probably six hours but i, I hear you yeah,
1: well they said you won't even be able to call an attorney if you get in there because they're you just you're you're going to get lost uh, and anyways so we're sweating bullets and uh, we get past him and we get right up to where the gate's going to be and and the the british airways flight from uh uh south africa which is headed to london which is going to be our plane wasn't due in for a couple hours and we got all these uh, uh soldiers running around with submachine guns looking at people and scrutinizing stuff he and i ducked into the men's room went into two stalls locked the doors and 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 Sat up on the toilet so you couldn't see that there were people in there, and we just we just hunkered in there for two hours while we were waiting for the the uh, British Airways to to come in because if we had been checked again, we'd have been arrested uh, because we were already past passport control and we were you know basically illegally in the country. So anyways, that was, uh, that was the short story, but that's how we almost got thrown in jail. The, the greatest sound I ever heard on that trip, besides the door being closed to, on the 747 to, to London, was uh, when the landing gear went up. We, uh, we ordered a round of drinks uh, as, as soon as uh, we reached cruise altitude on the way to London.
0: I can imagine. That's uh, again. That's kind of like some of these Alaskan things. I mean, this is serious business. I mean, you know, there's a big difference between adventure and sitting in a Kenya jail or any of those uh, small countries over there where they just don't really care.
1: Well, that, like Rick said, the further south you go uh, from the equator, the the less the law applies.
0: <laughs> but you know. And- That's just, that's crazy. I mean, again, is it even possible to even do, to recreate, like my dad used to always say this. My dad went on a lot of hunting trips, used to go in the bush for a month on end in Alaska and Northern Canada. And, you know, he, he even said, now this is going back 20 years ago. Uh, You know, he'd say, Hey, you couldn't, you can't recreate these things because a lot of the characters that were involved in this aren't doing it.